right. If you open your Bible to Romans 1, and uh, you might as well put your thumb in Revelations 20 and 21. We're going to look at all of those things and those texts together. So this is our last, uh, we call preview service, our, our before we launch weekly services in September. And just to go over, our first three messages together to kind of form what God's doing here were about the mission that God has put us on. We talked about making our lives count. So I said, if we could sum up the point of this church, why would you start another church, whatever, it would be let's make our lives count. Let's each individually own the mission of God in a new area, in the places where we live. Let's do the best to pursue a holistic ministry like Jesus, caring about people's spiritual and physical well-being. Let's join together and make our lives really count. And then the next time we met, we talked about the value of the one. The way you make your life count is to really see like God does and value the one. We were in Luke 15. We talked about the coin the lady lost. She searched the whole house. We talked about the prodigal son and God valuing the one life and rejoicing in that. And how heaven rejoices over one person's repentance. And in a world that desires mass impact, and even as a church we want to have mass, and you know, we want to impact a lot of people, you do that by valuing the one. You do that by pursuing the one. So the question was, who's your one? Who's at least one person that's far from God that you can try to make a difference in their life? Let's value the one. And we talked particularly about how Jesus pressed in for us to value, especially those that are unvaluable or unvalued by the world. Not unvaluable, but unvalued. And so now we place value on them because Jesus does. So when the world says you're not worthy or needed or necessary or whatever, we say the opposite. We say, we need you, we love you, God loves you, and he values you. So we value the one, we all pursue the one. We counterculture in that way, we pursue one life change at a time. Then we talked about how the battle is the Lord's, and how we need to be dependent on God. The Most church plants, if you guys aren't aware, you know, generally speaking, start with like 10 people in a house. And praise God for that, and the Lord takes those things and does amazing things. Uh, we're not that right now. The Lord has blessed us with a certain amount of people and resources. That's wonderful, but it's also super dangerous. It's super dangerous just to assume because there's already people in the room and just keep going with it. Or because we already have some of the basic things that we need. We're not as desperate. Human tendency is to not be desperate. And it's to settle. And so as we see God moving and working already from the beginning, we have to force ourselves to remind ourselves that if there's one person in the room or a hundred, we're equally dependent on the Lord. The Lord can do just as much to one person as a hundred. And so we got to constantly remind ourselves, the battle is God's, always. And so we fight how God has designed us to fight. We depend on the Lord. Then the last couple of weeks we talked about uh, who's in the car. So we were, we were explaining, it doesn't really matter where you go as long as the right people are in the car. So we can turn left, turn right, as long as we're generally headed in the right direction. You don't even mind getting lost as long as the right people are in the car. Unless it's probably your spouse and you're used to and comfortable with them and you're yelling at each other because you're lost and you're supposed to be somewhere, you know, 20 minutes here or whatever. Uh, uh, that's my other scenario sometimes. But for the most part, as long as the right people are in the car, all your spouse are looking at each other like, ah, never do that. Uh, the right people are in the car. It doesn't necessarily matter. If you take the left turn, you do this, do that. When we have a vision for the church, but you never know how God's going to play it out. And so what's more important than where we are going is how we are doing we want to press into that and say what's most important is how we are doing, and that will determine where we go and whether we have an impact along the way. There are two thoughts about that. One is that love is the essential ingredient. We can build good programs, have great strategies, reach a lot of people because we're smart, competent, and have resources, and end up doing nothing because we haven't loved well. Love is the essential ingredient. It's the one thing you cannot leave out. 
And it's the one thing we need to press in to give and to do and to be, to receive the love of God, to pour it out in other people's lives, to love each other well. We talked about how love covers a multitude of sins. And that if we love each other well, it doesn't leave a lot of room for offenses and grievances, rumors and gossip. There's just no room if love is filling there. So love is essential. Last week, I mean last time we met, we talked about how everyone is necessary. So it's super important for 1 Corinthians 12. That's why even I said today, it's not a program, this is not a show. I am preaching, but that's not more necessary than something else somebody else is doing. When we gather, we realize the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Then the rest of the chapters proceed to say, you have something you've been given by the Lord to build up the body. So when we gather, we understand everyone is necessary. And what was cool, we saw in the passage that I hadn't even noticed before in my reading of that, how it emphasizes God's arrangement. And it's not, it's not by assessment, but by God's assignment that we live this out. God has arranged the people in this room. He has arranged this certain group of people to be together. With certain gifts, experiences, talents, resources, whatever. He has arranged it. And so in God's mind, this is the ideal situation for him to say, let's move forward in this community, in this area, in this city. These are the people I want on this particular mission. God has arranged it to be so. And that's pretty cool when you think about God's sovereign hand orchestrating your life and your life and your life and my life to bring us together so that the hand is here, the foot's here, the ear, the eye, everybody's present, and the body can function well. We have to own the mission. Everyone is necessary. Everyone. Everyone equally necessary for God to do great things through this church. So we said, who's in the car? We have to have that. It takes humility on our part to look at everyone else and say, you're necessary for me. I need you. A lot of people like me who like to take care of life by yourself don't like the words I need you. I like to avoid having those words and feelings. I like to be fully self-sufficient and competent on my own. And a lot of us like that need to constantly remind ourselves, I need you, I need you, I need you. It takes humility on our part both to look at someone else and say, I need you. And it takes God's eyes to understand how everyone can be used. Then it takes confidence in the Lord for us to use our own gift. I want you to walk into this gathering humble. I need everyone else. But also confident the Lord has brought me here for a purpose. And it's not to watch someone preach. He brought me here for a purpose. And so now we're all engaged. And the Lord is going to take that and do some amazing things with it. Those are necessary. So the last thing I wanted to talk about today is the simple truth of this. That Jesus is worthy of this church. Jesus is worthy of this church, and the underlying truth of this is that the gospel is the power of the church. The gospel is the power of the church. The gospel is the engine that makes the car work. So who's in the car? Great, let's work that out. Now how does the car move forward? The gospel of Jesus Christ moves the car forward. So Romans 1, 16-17, you can read it down there in your, in your Bible or on the screen. It says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel, therefore, based off this couple verses alone, and as we see throughout scripture, is the power source of salvation. So think about it this way. You can walk home. You can flip as many lights on as you want. You can change every light bulb in the house. 
You can do everything you're supposed to do, but if there's no power coming to the house, no matter how many light bulbs you change, how many light switches you flip on, nothing will actually happen. No light will come because the power source is deactivated. It's not working. And it's the same thing with us. Man, we could flip a lot of light switches on, run this program, run that, do this, do that, be real smart with this and that. Change all the light bulbs to make this look better and that look better and this work better and this be smoother and those signs be better and this and that. We can do all those things all the time. But if the gospel is not what we're primarily preaching, teaching, talking about, and living out, there's no power. We'll be in a car, we might like each other, but we won't go anywhere. Because the gospel is the power source. It's the engine that makes this thing flow. And therefore, it's the gospel is the thing that we are unashamed of. That's why he says in verse 16, I'm unashamed of the gospel because it works. It changes people's lives. It has never not worked. When someone receives the gospel, their life has changed. Their eternity has changed. It doesn't not work. So I'm not ashamed of it. You see here in the scripture as well, it says salvation is available to everyone who believes, which means we should be trying to take the gospel to everyone we know. So if the gospel is the power source of this church and it makes it work, and if salvation is available to everyone who believes, then our job is to take the gospel, the power, to everyone we know. That's why we always say this is not a landing place, it's a launching pad. We don't land here, we launch from here into the life God has called us to, to take this gospel into the world around us. You can write this next thing down, the church will go as far as we take the gospel. The church will only go as far as we take the gospel. If we want this church to make a difference internationally, we have to take the gospel there. If we want this church to make a difference in this high school, we have to take the gospel here. If we want this church to make a difference on the college campuses around us, we have to take the gospel there. If you want to see God work in your neighborhood, you can't be nice enough, you have to take the gospel there. If you want to see God work in your workspace, you have to take the gospel there. Your life will only make a difference to the extent at which you live out and proclaim the gospel. And this church will only make a difference to the extent at which we live out and proclaim the gospel. So that's what we will do on Sunday, and I will make sure of it. That's one of my primary jobs. But we as a body have to make sure that we're doing this every day. If it's really going to be true that this is not a landing place but a launching pad, we have to launch into doing useful things. The most useful thing we could ever do is be gospel preachers, talkers, gospel living out, representing Jesus in word and deed in everything that we do and say, which is why what we've talked about so often, lighthouses, which are our groups that meet around the city, are so vital and important to this. We had a meeting yesterday. We've begun to solidify those. They'll be up on the website soon. By launch day, those will be figured out pretty well. We would love for you guys to join one and live this out on a day-to-day -day basis. There's really no way for this to not be a landing place unless we launch into something intentional. And unless that place emphasizes sharing the gospel. So the church will go as far as we take the gospel. And your life will make a difference as far as you take the gospel. And a lot of us in churches spend an awful lot of time flipping a lot of switches on without ever flipping the power source on. So the gospel is the power. And there's no reason to be, I mean, there's a reason that being nice is a good thing. But there's no reason to do all those things and make things look good and be nice and do good things for the world around us if the gospel isn't the primary thing we're living and giving up. So the gospel is the power source. I hope we like each other that we're in the right car. But we've got to access the power if we're going to move forward. I want you to see here, though, look at verse 16 17 in your Bible. So 16 says the gospel is the power. 17 gives the reason. It says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. 
This reveals two things. It reveals the standard of the righteousness of God, which is perfection. You have to be holy to be acceptable to God without flaw and blemish. You have to be perfect. And we're not. So that's problem number one for us. But then it reveals the solution, the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. That Jesus, the Son of God, was perfect for us. He did that because we could not. He died to take care of all our imperfections and sins. The judgment was laid on Him on the cross. He rose again from the grave. And if anybody believes in Him, they will be saved. In that message, the righteousness of God, both His standard for holiness and His solution to our problem that we're not holy, is revealed. Therefore, the power is in the gospel. But I love how this works itself out. It says, the righteous shall live by faith. So that's what we're going to talk about today. The gospel is the power source. The way the people of God live it out is that they're the righteous ones who live it out by faith. So if you took your Bible, went to Habakkuk 2, I'll have it on the screen if it takes you a while to find it, in the Minor Prophets, it's a reference to Habakkuk 2. So Paul is using a different scripture, and this is what that scripture says. It says, The Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. And then Paul pulls from that and he says in Romans 1, the gospel is the power source for salvation and the righteous will live by faith. And he's referencing that because the same issue is there as it was then. It looks like God is slow to fulfill his promises. It looks like God is not doing what he said he would do sometimes. And eternity and some of the realities that we face are things we cannot see. And so in Habakkuk, the same problem was being had that people were not following the Lord's way because they couldn't see the end yet. And Jesus and the, uh, the God here says, I'm going to write it down for you. And the righteous will live by faith, believing something they haven't seen yet. That's what it means for the righteous to live by faith. Hebrews 11, 1 says the same thing. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is believing in the Lord Jesus, believing in eternity, heaven, hell, all these things, even though we haven't seen it yet, and it's living by that every day. Therefore, the righteous will live by faith in things that are to come because they believe what has been written down. The unrighteous will not live by faith because they will not believe things they cannot see. And that's the difference that we have here. And so what I want to do in this next couple minutes is put some new glasses on for all of us to see with the eyes of faith some of the realities that are at play that drive our mission. So if we're going to plan a church and we're not doing it just to have another church or whatever, we're not doing it just because, we need eyes of faith to help us see. We need to put new glasses on, so to speak, and see what it is that God wants us to see through His eyes, through His Word, that give us the motivation to help us live by faith. So, so often in our lives, we're not living the right way because we're not living with the end in mind. We're not living with spiritual things in mind. We get very focused on things that we can see. I'll give you a simple example of this. I was on a plane ride one day, and I'd actually gotten really great accidental first-class tickets. And I was like, I don't know, 23 or something, you know? And I was just like, wow, this is amazing. 
they literally put me in first class for no reason. I have no idea why it happened, but I didn't move once I was sitting there. I was like, this is fantastic. I belong here. And uh, I was coming back from being, a, I was doing missions, I think, in the Dominican Republic. I was traveling back from the Dominican Republic, missionary sitting first class. Uh, fantastic. And the guy I was sitting next to was actually the agent of a used to be famous baseball player, Haley Ramirez. And so he was that guy's agent. You know, Hanley was making tons of dough at the time. So this guy was like, you know, he, he was Dominican and he was just like, man, I love Dominican people. They're the best. They're a lot of fun. And he, we were having great conversations and he has all this crazy, like he belongs in first class, you know. That's where he belongs. I do not. Uh, he asked me what I'm doing, you know, I'm like, I don't, even know, I don't even know if I have a job, you know, I just got out of college, I'm just kind of like running around doing stuff. I don't really have a thing that I'm doing. Uh, I was in the DR just sharing the gospel, if that counts, so for something. Uh, and we were talking back and forth, and I remember beginning to engage in him in a conversation about his faith. He was Catholic, he grew up Catholic, that's what he knew, but he didn't really practice it or anything like that. He was okay with God being there, but he didn't have a relationship with, with God for Jesus, didn't even know what that meant. And just as we begin to explain that, just a little bit more, we hadn't gotten into it. There was this huge dark cloud in the sky, like huge. I've been on lots of plane rides. I've never seen this before. It was like a dark wall. And it was literally, as we could all see it coming, the pilot was going to think, you know, everybody get ready. There's going to be some turbulence, whatever, whatever, whatever. She's like, okay, it's fine. You expect to go like this. Well, literally, as soon as we hit the dark cloud, I'm not kidding, we just dropped like, it just, you hit it, and we just fell out the sky. It felt like <laughs> years. It felt like whatever, and I'm not kidding. People, so we both, you know, your instant reaction when you're falling is, Duh! you put your hands like this. So my hand was on his. We were holding each other's hands. We were both like this. People were like yelling. They were cussing everywhere, you know. When, when we finally found out we were all safe, people were apologizing to their kids. They were like, I'm sorry, sweetie, I didn't mean to sound just nervous, you know. I'm telling you, I've been in some bad flights. I have never felt closer to death in that moment than when I did. And literally, as we're, when we're falling out of the sky, I'm thinking, this is it. I'm, I'm literally thinking I'm dying. Like, I'm dead. I'm just telling you, that's how it felt. It was like a drop. Just a drop out of the sky. We're falling, and I look over to him, and I just yell at him. Do you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you ready to die? Just yelling at him. Are you ready to die? You know? He's like, he's not, he's not responding to me. He's not saying anything. He's just looking at me, holding my hand. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. And so after I yelled at him, the plane finally got back. You know, everybody's, everybody's recovering in the cabin. People are relaxed and they're... We're alive again, okay? You know that feeling. Okay, it's over. We're fine. And it was kind of obvious. We ruined our hands from each other. Uh, and I mean, that's okay. Humanhood, you know, we feel you. Neither one of us wants to die. That's okay. Uh, and we were, after that, I was super awkward. I was like, I've kind of already went way over by yelling at him. Like, we're on the way down. You repent now or you're dying. And this is not going to work out for you. So now's the time. I was like, Hey, bro, I know I just yelled at you. I thought we were going to die. And so I really was concerned. What we were talking about is very important. You need to believe in it today. Uh, and I wish it was one of those moments where it was like, yes, Lord. That didn't happen. He was like, yeah, no, no, that's good. And we talked, and you know, who knows? Maybe he's a Christian now. I don't know. Uh, the reason I share that is because the reality of eternity and of the end got rid of all my hesitations. Because I really felt like this was urgent, and I felt like it might be my last chance and his, I didn't care about what he thought, I didn't care about how I looked, it didn't bother me that I was holding his hand, and I am 
If people know me, I'm not a biggest hugger, toucher person. You know, I like to hug my kids and my family. You know, my, my wife, but I don't just hug everybody. So, learning, learning, side hugs and stuff. So, anyways, uh, I'm just not the most touchy person. We're holding hands and whatnot. All that went out the window because I could see more clearly what my life was really about. And I was there at the end, getting ready to stand before the Lord, how I really felt. And if I was going to go down, I might as well go down swinging. I had gotten rid of everything. And I think the same is true for us, that this kind of reality the Bible talks about is possible if we really see with eyes of faith the eternal realities that play around us. If we can sense it, if we can feel it, if we can feel like it's really right here, legitimately right here. And any one of us at any time can run into eternity without warning. And if we felt and sensed what heaven was really like, what hell was really like, what the throne was really like of Jesus Christ, we would live with more gospel readiness. So the goal of today right now is just to give you two pictures from the Bible of some eternal realities to help you sense it, feel it, taste it, and hopefully be motivated to live more urgently for it. So, as I said in the title, this first part is Jesus is worthy of this church. It's the throne room, Revelation 4, 6 through 11. I just want to give you a picture of what's happening in heaven right now. I want to give you a picture of what it looks like for Jesus to be worshipped right now. I want to give you a picture of what the Bible tells us the throne room looks like right now. So right this very minute, as we're gathering, what does it look like in heaven? How do they treat Jesus in heaven? What is the throne like in heaven? This is right now, in this moment, it is happening presently. And we need to see with eyes of faith. So Revelation 4, 6 to 11. Let the word kind of just get you there, okay? So it says, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. He says like and because he doesn't really know exactly what it is. There's not really a lion. He's just like, that's the best comparison I got. So, like a lion, like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. This is happening literally right now. And these four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Just picture it. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So just get there for a second. It's just crazy, bizarre things. And it's not like, you know, there's a time, 10 o'clock, we're going to get together and we're going to say, Holy is the Lord. You know, then after we go to rest at 6 a.m., we'll wake up and say, Holy is the Lord. This literally never stops happening, ever. You can think about it any time and it will be happening at that moment. And then whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. So now you have all these creatures that are bowing down and giving glory, and then you have the 24 elders, they fall before him, they worship him, they cast their crowns before the throne, and they say, Worthy are you, Lord our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is happening right now. Jesus is on his throne. He's being worshipped. He's being praised. 
unceasingly by creatures we would be terrified of if we saw in person. And they're saying over and over again that He's holy and worthy. Holy and worthy. Holy and worthy. Holy and worthy. And the goal of creation is to bring people to join them to do that forever. The reason the world exists, the reason you and I exist, are to join them in that and participate with them in that forever. This is the reality of what's happening at the throne of Jesus right now. And this should give us focus about who's worthy of our worship, who's worthy of this church, who's worthy of our lives and our money and our resources and our time. What are our priorities in life? Jesus is worthy of it all. And right now he's being praised unceasingly. And so our lives should be lived out in the same way. Let's join the chorus of heaven and not only sing, but give our whole lives as worship to God. So Jesus is worthy of this church. There's a church here simply because Jesus is worthy of it. And if all we did was say, Jesus, you're worthy of this, we're going to go out and try to live the best we can, right? That would be what it really is about. This church exists simply because Jesus is worthy of it. He's worthy of this church existing and a million others. And secondly, not only is Jesus worthy of this church, but the world needs this church. Not because we're a special church, but just because we are the church. The world needs this church and a bazillion more godly, Jesus-loving, gospel-preaching churches. And the goal of this church is to start many other churches. To start as many of these as we can. Why does the world need this church? Well, let me give you a picture of heaven and hell from the Bible. So you can sense it, taste it, feel it. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. This is the great day of judgment. This is really happening, everyone. This is not a story. This is not a myth. This is not any of that. This is going to happen just as he said it will. Right? Remember Habakkuk 2. It may seem slow to pass, but the righteous live by faith. This is really happening. Revelation 20:11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. What does that even mean? The world runs away from him. And no place was found for them. What he's basically saying is there was nowhere for anyone to hide. They couldn't hide under any cave, any rocks. The throne was seated and it was just bareness and everybody was before the throne. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. So everybody. And now some books were opened. Real books. These exist in heaven right now. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And then the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's right there. It's like literally happened one day. Literally will go down just like this. You're going to feel it. You're going to sense it. You're going to smell it. You're going to be right there. All of us will be there for this moment. And if people's names are not written in the book of life, they will be separated from God forever in a place of torment a lake of fire, a place called hell. This will happen to them. It will happen to you if you haven't trusted in Jesus. This will happen, and you will stay there forever. you got to feel There's no out. 
There's no annihilation, there's no second chances, there's no thousand years of pain, and then it's over. It's forever. Forever. People do not follow Jesus. This is the end of their this is the end of their life. This is where they end up. And I know it sucks, but you have to think about it. You gotta feel it. You gotta sense it, you gotta taste it. And if you're in this room and you haven't followed Jesus, I really hope you feel it and sense it and taste it. He loves you. And as we're going to see, He's made a way. It doesn't have to end this way. It doesn't have to end this way, but it will if you don't follow Jesus. So that's hell. This is the context in which we do ministry. I want us to pick this church up out of Falls Church in D.C. and the world and put it in these contexts to say we're not primarily planting a church between Falls Church and Annandale. We're planting a church between heaven and hell. Between heaven and hell. This church is playing itself out. That's the context of this church. And look at this. This is the good news. This is why we have such good news. So instead of that, there's another reality. There's not just hell, there's heaven. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. At the same scene, so once the first thing happens and the dead are judged according to what they had done, if their names aren't in the book of life by trusting in Jesus, they're sent away. The ones who are left are the people of God who have followed Jesus. And this is what happens with them. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So remember verse 11, the earth and sky fled away. I don't know what the world that looks like, but it's gone. We're all just somehow there. So then a new one comes down. The sea was no more. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. One of the major things I do in my job is weddings. I often see brides prepared. Yes, I'm doing your wedding. That's going to be a lot of fun. All right, fantastic. I often see brides prepared for their husbands. I see how this goes down. I have been married as well myself. I'm still married to the same person. <laughs> have been, I, I, mean, I got married. I still am married. Have been, that did not right. I am married. Uh, and I remember what went into her getting ready. The dress that she bought. The amount of makeup that she put on. The things everybody did. The same things that the brides do. They're adorned. They're special treatment for that particular person on that day. And the Bible's saying God's going to treat this new place with that kind of special treatment. He's going to adorn it. It's a gift that he gives to his son, Jesus. And so it comes down. It's just the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. You just can't even imagine it. You know, I love 1 Corinthians 2, 8 and 9 says, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard what God has in store for those who love you imagine that? You haven't even seen it or heard it. Like the, be the most beautiful sound you've ever heard doesn't compute. Like it doesn't give you the, enough information for you to know what kind of sounds God has. The things you have seen are great in some level. It just doesn't even give you enough information. You don't even know. Our eyes haven't even seen the types of things that God's going to give us the capacity to see. This is amazing. So he sees it come down. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them. No separation. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, or pain. For the former things have passed away. If anyone's name was not found in the book of the life 
he was thrown into the lake of fire. I want you to compare those two things now. There's a place where people will no longer be in pain, or they'll be happy forever. That's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And those people will be given a unique body that's able to enjoy this unique world in an unbelievable way forever. No hindrance, no problems, nothing. And God will be with them, amongst them, not separated from them, not in a different dimension. You know, He'll be with them, presently. And then the other option is people who are separated from all of that forever. And not only are they separated from the good, but they have to endure the bad. And these two scenes are the end of history. Jesus talks about this too in Matthew 25. He gives the picture of the great judgment. He says he calls it sheep and goats, and God separates the goats as those who have not followed him, and the sheep as those who have submitted to Jesus and followed him, and he does the same thing. And he puts the goats away and separates them away from him forever, and he brings the sheep in. This great day of judgment is something the Bible talks about a lot, and is something that is surely to come. This church is planted in between that and this time. The reason this church exists is to get people ready for that time. To get you ready for that time. To get us ready for that time. Every human you've ever met is headed for this place. People need this church because they need the gospel. Because the gospel is the only thing that has the power to prepare them for that day. Nothing else will work. Nothing else. If they don't have Jesus, so to speak, in their pocket, in their heart, in their life, with them as their defender, Savior, and Lord, they have no defense. Nothing else will work. Only the gospel of Jesus, and only if it's received now, on this side of history. That's the only time the gospel works. It doesn't work then, it works now. And it brings us into them, but they don't get a second chance. Everyone in your neighborhood is headed for this day. Everyone. Everyone in your family, your friends, and all your circles of influence are headed for this day. Everyone you meet at school, headed for this day. Everyone you meet at work, headed for this day. Everybody in the apartment complexes around here and the houses, all the teachers, faculties, and students that come to this school, and every human being that you will run into is headed for this day. And many of them, and probably many of us, way sooner than we expect. We have no idea how many days left we have to prepare people for this day. No idea. We have no idea how long this church will, will live as it is. We have no idea what God has planned. And so we need to put these eyes of faith on to see the things God has written down. And it may seem slow to pass, but the righteous will live as if it's tomorrow. The righteous will live like they can see it. The righteous will live by faith, which means they taste, they sense, they see, they feel things other people can't taste, sense, see, or feel. Because by the Holy Spirit, God has given them and us new eyes to see. So the problem isn't, if you've received Jesus, you have the Spirit. The problem now isn't necessarily your eyesight, it's your focus. And whether you're remembering these things, putting them before you, reading these texts, Reminding yourselves of what really matters. In the midst of all your worries and anxieties and problems that you're facing on a daily basis, they keep us from remembering the real problem and what's really going on in the world around us. This is the context of this church. So Jesus is worthy of this church. He's receiving praise unceasingly. The world needs this church because everybody's going to end up at the day of judgment. And the only power source we have 
to make any difference in this world right now while we have the chance of the gospel. Which is why we're going to spend an awful lot of effort training all of us how to share the gospel. Spend an awful lot of time going out to share the gospel. This is the best thing we can do for the world around us. And if we're really going to launch into what God has for us from Sunday into the week, the main way we launch into making a difference is by being equipped and ready to go share the gospel in all our spheres of influence. You live in a neighborhood I do not, and that he does not, and that she does not. You have friends that we do not, you have a workplace that we do not. And if we all just programize one place to be together to do something for an event, we'll miss 95% of the people that God actually wants us to reach. The goal is not to run fantastic programs where we all get together and do the same thing, which we will do sometimes, it's fine, but the goal is to, trip, uh, to train and equip you to do that on your own and to be in a lighthouse where you're being encouraged and you're being equipped and you have neighbors who like love Jesus with you and you guys can do this together and live this out. This is why these lighthouses are so important because it helps us live this out. And it helps us remind ourselves of what we're really living for. The context of this church is the throne room of God. The context of this church is heaven and hell. The reason this church exists is because Jesus is worthy of it. The reason this church exists is because the world needs it. I'm going to ask the, the band to go ahead and come out. What we're going to do as we close out, we find different ways to give some significant time in our services to prayer. And, uh, today what I want us to do is take communion and for us to really engage with the Lord through communion and for us to remember what Jesus has done for us to reflect on his life, death, and resurrection and to give him the praise and honor that he's worthy of and to remember why our lives really exist. So as we, as we pray and as we get ready for this, one, remember Jesus gave us communion to remember the blood he poured out and the body that was broken for us. And he tells us as his Christ followers, we do this to remember him. So if you know and love Jesus, we're going to go take communion, not as just a spiritual exercise, but as a time for us to remember the very spiritual realities I'm just discussing. Jesus really did come. He really did die. He really did rise again. He really did do it for you. And that message really is helpful to save other people. This is all true. So we take communion to remember that, to reflect on that, and to love that. And then for those of you who aren't followers of Christ, now is your time to really receive Jesus. Instead of taking communion, which is for people who already believe this, this is your time to think about what I've said, to think about where you stand with God, to think about whether you've really trusted in Him with your life, to think about whether you're ready for that day of judgment, and to receive the free gift that He's given you. He wants to bring you into heaven with Him. He wants to save and change your life. He loves you and does not want you to end up getting judged and going to hell. He wants you to be with Him forever. And he's made a way by dying and rising again for you. And today's the day God brought you here to hear that, believe it, Receive it and have your life and eternity change forever. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor. You don't need my help or anybody else's help. Right there in your seat, you can talk to God. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised you from the dead, you'll be saved. Because with the heart, one is justified. So if you really believe that and you confess that to the Lord in your own seat, in your own way with Jesus, you can be saved sitting right there. And I want that to happen for you. So as we, as we get ready for this, just everybody, as they're setting it up, there's just going to be some bread and a, a little cup to dip it in. And for us to take communion that way and take it on your own, we won't necessarily all take it together. But take a few minutes to pray with the Lord to get your heart ready. And that might mean some of you just accepting the Lord and staying in your seat and trusting in Him. And for many of you, that means repenting of forgetting all these truths and realities or whatever the Lord puts on your heart. So really take this time to legitimately pray and do business with God and then take communion as you're ready. And then we'll sing one more song.
uh, to celebrate the Lord, but also commit our lives over to Him and surrender everything we've possibly been holding back. So let me pray. Uh, and then after I'm done praying, you take communion as you will. And then when the time is right, we'll sing that song together. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. Thank you for all you've done for us. I just pray that these realities would hit us, smack us in the face, would wake us up. Lord, that we would live out church and ministry and making disciples with these realities in mind. That you would help us to be the kind of people who live by faith, who see the things you see, who feel the things you feel, who sense the things you see. So Lord, get us there and forgive us for how short we've come, how, how much we've fallen. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus. We thank you for grace. We thank you that you love us in spite of ourselves. And so Lord, as we take communion, we remember what you've done for us and we celebrate you and all that you are for us. So Lord, we love you and we do this to honor your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take your window, buddy.